Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you <clears throat> say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you is, if his own son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. This is the very word of God. Well, as we have been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's important for us to remember um, the thesis of the entire sermon, at least as Matthew has presented it to us. We read these words, uh, the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is what uh, Jesus is impressing upon us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Here are these words. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've been learning along the way that Jesus is not setting out here in the Sermon on the Mount a list of rules that we have to keep in order to go to heaven when we die. He is laying out the expectations for his disciples in light of the arrival of the kingdom of God already while we live. So this isn't a set of conditions we have to fulfill so that finally, eventually, we can get somewhere. This is something has already come. The kingdom of God has already arrived. So then... If you want to be a part of this kingdom right now, these are the expectations. This is how disciples of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of God, must live. There are then three main points to the sermon, because all good sermons should have three points. These three points address the ways that this greater righteousness fulfills the demands of the law. Matthew 5 21 to 48. The second point is the greater righteousness required in religious devotion, Matthew 6, 1 to 21. Last week and this week, we are looking at the third point in the Sermon on the Mount, 
discussing the greater righteousness required and how we relate to other people in the world. Uh, or I should say, relate to the world in general. Because last week, we considered the Christian's relationships to the goods of the world, the material realities of the world. This passage then speaks to the Christian's relationship to the people of the world. So last week, the goods of the world. This week, the greater righteousness required and how we relate to the people of the world. And in this passage, uh, pretty well known by a lot of people, Christian, non-Christian alike, we see that the expectation for God's citizens, for his kingdom people is, simply put, they must treat other people with dignity and respect. This is quite clearly what Jesus is communicating to us in these 12 verses. If we are going to be citizens of the kingdom of God, if we're going to enjoy the realities of the kingdom now come in Jesus, then we must have this kind of greater righteousness. We must treat all people, all people with dignity and respect. Now, on the one hand, that probably is not much of a surprise, but we need to see a little bit more of what this might mean. In what way are we to treat people with dignity and respect? How might we begin to be convicted on how we fail in this regard? So, three points for us this morning. First, we must be a friend of sinners. Second, We must guard the sacredness of the gospel. And then third, we must live by the golden rule. We must be a friend of sinners. We must guard the sacredness of the gospel. And we must live by the golden rule. So first, we look at these words in the first five verses of chapter seven. I think this is the first point that's being impressed upon us here in these verses. Jesus issues here the command to his disciples, again, pretty well known, even among non-Christians, that his disciples are not to judge others. Instead, we are to be a friend of sinners. Do not judge sinners, Jesus might say, but be a friend of sinners. Now, when we say to someone, hey, don't judge me, you ever heard those words? Yeah, we probably mean something like this. Don't evaluate my actions negatively. The word to judge is used today almost entirely in this negative sense. And verse 1 by itself is easily read this way. That's why so many people are drawn to Matthew 7, 1. Forget the rest of the verses, which we're going to look at in a minute. But Matthew 7, 1 sounds exactly like that. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Hey, don't say anything negative about me, and I won't say anything negative about you. It sounds as if Jesus is telling us here in verse 1 that we are to hold no opinions on the rightness or wrongness of others' beliefs or actions. 
But if that were so, it would require us to abandon all sense of morality. And it simply makes no sense to tell someone who disapproves of something in me, hey, don't judge me, is itself, of course, to make a judgment on the judger, on another person. We are moral creatures, so we can't help but to make moral judgments. All of us have some sense of right and wrong. And Jesus here does not mean to imply that that's wrong, that we shouldn't have this moral sense. So to understand what Jesus is prohibiting, just keep reading, right? Just keep reading. Verse 2 says this, For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And by the time we get down to verse 5, we sense what it is that Jesus is after, what it is that he's prohibiting in verse 1. He's concerned with hypocrisy, hypocritical judging, holding others to a standard that we do not expect of ourselves. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 when he rebukes the one who judges another, quote, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So, Romans 2.1 says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. We all know what this looks like, don't we? It's those politicians who restricted certain types of behaviors during the pandemic, but then were caught not living by the same standards. And we all hate that when we saw it, right? Such hypocrisy, Jesus is saying, is to have no place, listen, no place in the life of a disciple of Jesus. We must be consistent in applying the same standards to ourselves that we would expect of others. But the problem is that we're not very good at applying standards that we expect of others on ourselves. In fact, we're pretty much terrible at it. We, we, we pretty much can't even do it. The reason that the church is often viewed as hypocritical, self-righteous, is because we're just not good at seeing our own inconsistencies. This is the reason for the comedic imagery that Jesus uses in verses 3 and 4. Why are we so good at noticing the little speck, he says, in someone else's eye when you've got a log in your own eye and don't even seem to notice? The point is that we tend to be blind to our own deficiencies, which not only makes us guilty, we've got deficiencies, we've got our own problems, we've got our own things that can be judged against us. It not only makes us guilty, it makes us bad judges of others' guilt. So what are we to do? Are we to do not judge? Let's just not make moral judgments. I mean, after all, We've got our own problems. Who am I to judge, we might say, since we can at least acknowledge the likelihood that we have our own failures that need to be addressed. 
Such a position, which many Christians have taken, sounds virtuous. But this also will not satisfy the text. Verse 5 tells us that the goal here is not to leave everybody blind, whether it's a log or a speck. The goal is not to leave everyone alone. Just be concerned about yourself. Make no moral judgments on anyone else. No, notice what it says. The goal here at the end of verse five is to see clearly so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who says something quite similar in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, sisters, if someone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, the Apostle says, lest you too be tempted. So, yes, Take the speck out of your brother's eye. Yes, restore him who has been caught in a transgression. But here's the thing you must watch out for. You have to consider yourself and your own sins and failures. You must be aware of your own temptations. All right, now, put all this together then. And we can see that the teaching here we can see what it is and we can see and we can understand the goal that the Lord has laid out for us to pursue. Again, we can't help but make moral judgments. You see things and you feel an an instinct that says, "Mm, something's not right. That That instinct is a factor, a fact of being made in the image of God. The problem is, that we think we see the problems in others more clearly than we really do. Our own immorality clouds our judgment for all of us. That's not just true of that person who is annoying to you, always on your case. It's true of us all. It's true of your pastor's. So how do we get the log out of our eye? (laughs) When you see beliefs or actions in others that set off your moral alarm bells, you first must, hear me, you must find a way to identify with that person. I'll say that again. When you see something in another that you say, mm, that doesn't seem right. The first thing disciples of Jesus must do is find a way to identify with that person. Before you say anything, you need to see that you are much more like that person than you probably know. See, here's a simple fact. We treat those that we see as having the same kinds of struggles we have with far more gentleness, compassion, and respect than we do with others with whom we do not identify. We all do that. And if we judge others without mercy, without gentleness, without compassion and respect, then Jesus warns us we will be judged the same way. 
woe. As James puts it in James 2.13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. The kind of Jesus that, the kind, sorry, the kind of Jesus, the kind of judging that Jesus is prohibiting here is the judgment that provides no pathway for redemption. The kind of judging that Jesus is against is the judgment that God alone can pronounce, a judgment of condemnation with no chance for redemption. You do not have that authority. Our place is to do all that we can to come alongside a person with compassion, humility, and grace. What Jesus requires for us then in a positive way is to be for others what he has been for us. Luke 7.34 says it. Jesus was a friend of sinners. I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you? Are we? Now, if anyone still holds the opinion that Matthew 7.1 somehow is meant to tell us never to make a moral judgment, don't judge me, who am I to judge? Verse 6 could only be read as a contradiction. If you think that in Matthew 7.1 and 7.1 through 5, if you're going to somehow turn that into just leave everybody alone, Everybody to themselves, we're all broken, we're all sinners. If, if that's how you're reading it, then you've you got a real problem with Matthew 7, verse 6. <laughs> I mean, just look. To call someone a dog or a pig can hardly be squared with the idea that we are never to make any moral judgments of others. But what we are being told here is that in our friendship with sinners... We must not give up our distinction with those who are yet enemies of the gospel of Christ. What we find in verse 6, and I think also in verses 7 through 11, I believe these verses go together, is not a contradiction to verses 1 to 5, but a sort of counterbalance to it. Disciples of Jesus are to be friends with sinners, Full stop. This is not a balancing out like, well, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. It's fully a friend of sinners, just like Jesus was. And at the same time, we must maintain our sacred distinction as the holy people of God. God. We must guard the sacredness of the gospel. Can you hold both those things together? Can you be fully a friend of sinners and at the same time maintain and guard the distinctiveness as part of God's holy people. Verse 6 is usually considered to be the most difficult verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And one reason for this is that it is proverbial. It's, it's the kind of thing you would expect to read in the book of Proverbs, don't you think? You read a statement like this, it's a, it's a short, I had a Hebrew professor who'd always say, a pithy statement, and I always laugh when I hear, see the word pithy, a pithy statement. Um, short, pithy statements like this are usually ambiguous, on purpose, 
so that they can be used in a variety of ways. The proverb of Matthew 7, verse 6, could be rightly applied in all sorts of situations. Many of us who've grown up in a Christian setting have undoubtedly heard someone say, don't throw your pearls before swine. In all kinds of different conditions, you've heard that thing thrown at you. You're like, I think I know what that means. Is that right? There are lots of occasions when such a saying might well apply. And so I'm going to do a dangerous thing and venture into one such occasion. Oh, man, not everybody's going to agree with me on this. Is that okay? Do you guys love me? Can I do this? <laughs> Just thinking about it. Whatever your take is on Halloween and Christian participation in it, if you do decide to participate, if you did decide, I waited till it was over. If you did decide to participate in the cultural celebration, I would suggest to you, just in your consideration, that passing out a gospel tract or even finding some way to do a gospel presentation along with or worse instead of some good, that means chocolate, candy, is casting your pearls before swine. Oh, man. I, you disagree. Fine, I'm okay with that. It's just a proverb. Maybe I'm wrong. It's not to say that if you did do that a few days ago that you have sinned. Shame on you. You're a horrible person. No, 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 no. It's a proverb. This is not a challenge on a Christian or a church's sincerity but simply a rounding out of all the ways we need to consider how we're supposed to be in the world. We need to be friends with sinners, but there's something sacred that we need to protect. And nothing is more sacred than the gospel. And we must take care that we do not lay it out in such a way that we make it open to unnecessary abuse. Yes, yes, we need to share the gospel. But do you know what this proverb teaches us? Is that at times we need to keep our mouths shut. You probably haven't heard that in church in a long time. At times, we need to limit our sharing so that the gospel treasure is not unnecessarily viewed with contempt. And for some Christians, knowing when to keep their mouth shut is just as critical as for the rest of us learning how to be bold and open our mouths and speak the truth of the gospel. Now, what about dogs and pigs? You know, don't go around calling people dogs and pigs. You understand the first century context here. Jesus is speaking to Jew Jewish believers. He's talking to Jewish followers. Dogs and pigs is a clear first century reference to Gentiles. You see this in Matthew's gospel itself. Matthew 15, 26 to 27, the story um, of and, um, Matthew 15, 26, 27 is a reference to a Gentile being called a dog. 
In the story of the demons that were cast out of the two demoniacs in Matthew chapter 8, where do those demons go? Into a herd of pigs. Jesus is giving here clearly some caution as to how we are to relate to those who are not yet part of the people of God. Fully a friend of sinners. Come alongside and help people by all means. And at the same time, just counterbalance this. Counterbalance this with fully in on holding to the sacredness of the gospel we preach. I think that the reference to dogs and pigs is meant to be a little bit more specific than simply a reference to what you and I would be tempted to just call non-Christians. That's why you shouldn't go around calling people dogs and pigs. You've, we've lost that sort of a cultural background. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is he's referring to dogs and pigs as not just individual unbelievers. He's referring more specifically to the Roman Empire. I don't have time to uh, unpack all of that. I can point you to some resources that will. But let me just point into that for a moment. The reason that we are not to give to dogs what is holy or throw pearls before pigs is because, keep reading. What does it say? Finish the proverb. If you do that, they will trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, this should remind us, especially that first word, trample underfoot. Does that remind you of some other words in the Sermon on the Mount? We've seen these words before. In Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus says that if salt has lost its saltiness. He calls his disciples the salt of the earth. Remember this? You guys do remember this, right? Okay. He calls you the salt of the earth. And he says, but if you've lost your distinctiveness, if you were to lose somehow your saltiness, then you would be good for nothing but thrown out and what? Trampled underfoot. So it's the same word that's used in Matthew 5, 13 is used right here. In both cases, we see the importance of sacred distinctions being maintained. Jesus is warning his church about the dangers of becoming too much like the cultural power structures which thrive on injustice and violence. This is more applicable than you probably think. God's people must not seek to have influence the way that the world does. You're all nodding your heads like, yeah, that's right. But okay, well, let's talk about this. The gospel that we offer to the world must not be presented with a pushiness and an edginess that looks as if we're trying to win a battle. that we are competing for power and influence. If our evangelism and our friendship with sinners feels like we're just trying to win a battle and gain more influence, then we're not doing the gospel work the way Jesus has laid it out. That's the way the world does it. We don't need to resort to such tactics. Indeed, if we do, 
the proverb says, you're going to lose. They're going to turn on you. You've lost your distinctiveness. They're going to trample it underfoot and devour you. All right. God help me. This is what concerns many of us today about the way in which so many Christians have made an unholy alliance with political power. Can we not see by now that by giving to some political party our allegiance because it is supposed to be the moral majority, the church ends up being devoured by the same party that traffics in conspiracies, lies, and gross immorality? Do you have eyes to see it? It is time for God's people to repent. You should read verse 6 along with what follows, showing us what the alternative is supposed to be. Look, pay attention. We don't need to make alliances with the dogs and the pigs, the Roman Empire, the political power. We don't have to do that. You know why? Look what it says. We have a father who gives good things to those who ask him. Do you believe it? Rather than compromising with power for power and privilege, we are to take the humble posture of prayer. Ask. Seek, knock. These three verbs are synonyms functioning together in a memorable way to encourage us to just ask God for what we need. We are to see that our Father in heaven is, listen, a very real alternative to the powers of any given age. I don't think here in Oklahoma we can write in presidential candidates. I'm pretty sure that that wasn't available. Um, but I always kind of smile when people just write in Jesus because at least they get it. Jesus, we're not in a category mistake here. Jesus really is an alternative to the powers of any given age. Jesus is as subversive as right here, him pointing to the Roman legions and saying, don't give dogs and pigs the pearls of great price. Don't do that. Ask the Father, and he'll give it to you. We have no need to compromise with the secular in order to advance the kingdom of God. I'll say it again. We have no need to compromise with the secular in order to advance the kingdom of God. After all, our God, our God is disposed to be good to us since he is our father and knows how to give good gifts to his children. Jesus himself modeled this for us, refusing in Satan's temptation to compromise with the devil in exchange for political power. Remember what the devil said? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Just take a moment and bow the knee to me. Just in a moment, I'll give it all to you. It's a nice compromise, isn't it? And Jesus said he would have none of it. So Jesus in Luke 12, 32 tells us, little children, have no fear. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
ask for it. I mean, just think, why pay the price for what our Father gives freely? I love it. Why can't it compromise when it's ours for the taking? No price has to be paid. No compromise has to be made. We simply ask, seek, knock, and the Father is not stingy. Why sell our souls for the temporary treasure that comes from political power and influence? We have no need. We are the people of God. Now, what we've seen in these two units of teaching then is not a contradiction. It is a counterbalance. We need wisdom then to know how to be both the friend of sinners and the guardians of the sacred gospel. This is going to take a lot of wisdom, isn't it? You disagree with my application on Halloween? That's fine. We need, we need the collective prayerful wisdom of the people of God. That's great. But here we have been given what is usually referred to as the golden rule. Let's just call it that. In verse 12, the golden rule coming at the end of this section and indeed the end of the entire body of the Sermon on the Mount puts both of these perspectives, friends of sinners, guardians of the sacred gospel treasure, it puts them both into proper perspective. Here in a memorable phrase is the way that we must live among the people of the world. So going back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, we saw the thesis for the entire Sermon on the Mount. Coming to the end of the introduction to the sermon, we got the thesis statement in Matthew 5, 17. Uh, begins this way. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember that? The law and the prophets. Now take a look at the golden rule, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the the law and the prophets. You see, what, you see what's happening here? This is a good sermon. It's a good sermon. He's given you a hint of where he's heading. He's expounded it. He's brought it back to its conclusion. Matthew 7, 12 is the completion of the thesis and brings on what we'll see next week, the conclusion to the entire sermon. What have we learned then? The law and the prophets is not abolished. There is a righteousness that God expects There's a morality, a behavior that we must do. There's a virtue that we must pursue or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm just trying to preach the Bible. But Matthew 7, 12, the golden rule, bringing this all to a conclusion, puts it in a very simple way. Some would indeed want to multiply the law and the prophets. And there's a place for that to some degree. We need to expound. What is it that God is asking of us? Some would, of course, accuse those who tend to multiply the law and the prophets as being legalists. But others, always wanting to reduce it, are often referred to as the liberals among us. Probably got people leaning both ways right here. But what we find in the golden rule is not a reduction. It's not Jesus siding in favor of the liberals, if you will. It's a summary, not a reduction. 
Not an amplification, but a summary. It tells us how to orient ourselves for being in the world and living righteously. I'm afraid that so many of us are so used to hearing the words of the golden rule that we just, it's almost irrelevant anymore. But this is it. You want to know how to pray every day? Pray the Lord's Prayer and then ask God by his grace to help you live by the golden rule. Because if you live by the golden rule, listen, if you truly live by the golden rule, fulfilling all that the law and the prophets have demanded, then you will not condemn others. You'll have compassion. Why? Because you will see in them your own self. You'll remember a God of infinite mercy and grace who rescued you out of your fallenness and your brokenness. How can you condemn others when you've been shown radical grace? So whatever you will, whatever you would that others would do to you, do also to them. If you live by the golden rule, you will find a power in a good father rather than than in temporary power from some inferior kingdom. You won't compromise with the enemy for the sake of what looks like advance of God's kingdom. He doesn't need that tactic. This is a power that is fueled by love and confronts injustice. It does not seek its own, but the good of all. It doesn't even find contentment in the most good for the most people, but instead believes in the greatest good for all people. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight observes, any serious pondering of all of life through the golden rule is dangerous for our moral health because it will summon us to live under the king as one of his kingdom citizens. So just think of that person in your life that looks so immoral to you. Think of that person who causes you a lot of difficulty and then ask yourself the question. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Any serious pondering of all of life through the golden rule will create undoubtedly a community that is full of compassion, confident in God made known through Jesus and eager to show genuine love. You know, nobody has a problem with the golden rule on the face of it. We all smile and say, yep, that's good. We all think the golden rule is just a really good idea. Simple, profound, Indeed, it's the best way to be a human. On the other hand, everyone has a problem with the golden rule. 
set within its context of the Sermon on the Mount, no one can say that they always live like this. It should make us humble. It should make us repentant. It should make us prayerful. If it doesn't have that effect, I can just tell you, you're not living by the golden rule. You've still got a log in your eye. But it's okay. Jesus can help us with that too. Come to him, and he'll show you the way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us a confidence, O Lord, in the power of your gospel that we can be, by your grace, the distinctive people of God, winsome, charitable, welcoming, inviting, and in no way compromising with the powers of darkness. I sure I speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters in saying, Lord, I tend to find myself mostly leaning in one of those two different directions, but these aren't contradictions. This is the way to be fully human. A friend of sinners like Jesus, and yet sinners were drawn to him. And he never lost any of his distinctive demands to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Would you show us by your grace how in our own day, in our time, and with the life you've given to us here at Crosstown Church, would you show us how to do that? How to do it with one another? How to do it in this community? How to do it in our neighborhoods? How to do it in our workplaces? How to do it in our families? We need your help. And we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.